So I want to begin by telling y'all a story tonight. Ray Cortez, who is a pastor of a church in Florida, it's about an hour north of Tampa, um, he tells a story of taking a road trip to the backwoods of southern Georgia. So he's driving on 95 north from Florida, and he tells of the twists and turns that brought him to this place called the Old School Diner. Uh, anyone here been to the Old School Diner in southern Georgia? No? Okay. So it's one of those famous dives that you hear about, like it's written up in Southern Living Magazine, and it's in this tiny little place between Townsend and Darien, Georgia. And to get there, you have to take this dirt road off of 95, and then you go through the woods that twist and turn, and Ray says that they knew that they were in a special place when the canopy of live oaks opened up, and there before them was this little cluster of mobile homes, and there on the grass where all the cars were parked were carpets. You parked your car on carpets. And they really knew they were in a special place as Ray was turning off the key in his car and out through the door of the diner comes this heavyset African-American man who welcomed them with the warmest welcome. And if that wasn't enough, Jerome, that's his name, Jerome came walking down towards the car and as they got out of the car, as they stood up, he wrapped his big burly arms around them, gave them both hugs and said, welcome, come on in, we've been waiting for you. I saw you as you were coming up the road. I already put the hush puppies on. We're glad that you're here. Now, that moment, Ray says this. He says, in that, mo- in that moment, Jerome was telling me something about the very heart of God. So this semester, we're reading the book of Leviticus together. And the first five chapters of the book are about sacrifices. And tonight, we're going to be talking about the second and third chapters, and particularly the second, um, the second and third sacrifices, the grain offering and the peace offering. And the reason I tell you about the old school diner is because one of the central images that God gives us in the Bible to describe who he is in relation to us is that he is the master of a banquet, and we are his guests. And tonight, as we read Levitus, Leviticus together, we're going to see how it is that God has made the way for sinners like us to be welcome at his table. So I'm going to read, to, read for us from Leviticus 2 and Leviticus 3. And this is printed on your, um, your yellow sheet. Um, so I'm going to read this for us. This is God's word for us tonight. He gives it to us because he loves us. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn it, this as the memorial portion on the altar. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord, and when it's presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. 
You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And then to chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on top of them at the loins, and the long lobe of liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Um, Lord, we confess that it is foreign and strange and has odd details, but we ask that you would help us tonight to make sense of it, um, to see what it has for us, um, and that we would see Jesus in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, tonight, I want to, I'm uh, borrowing heavily from uh, two pastors who've helped me with this, Ryan Anderson and Les Newsom. So we're going to start with the offerings, and we're going to work through those, and then kind of talk through the implications of them. So Leviticus, is, Leviticus 2 and 3, what we just read, deal with the grain offering and the peace offering. So starting Leviticus 2, God explains what the grain offering is. And the word, word literally means gift or tribute. And in the ancient Near East, when a rival king took over your country, you brought a grain offering. You brought a royal tribute to him. And this was a sign that you were going to remain subject and loyal to your new king. Now, God goes on to explain that you could either bring the ingredients for the bread or you could bake the bread. You have to have oil and incense with it. A portion of the offering was burned on the altar while another portion was given to the priest to have for their food. And there's two things that you need to remember about the grain offering. First, there wasn't to be any honey or leaven in the offering. This is because both of these ingredients, both honey and leaven, when they're baked in bread, would begin to ferment in the cooking process. And fermentation is a process of decay. And God has already said that there's no decay or breaking down that will be part of his offering. So second, we read that there has to be salt in the offering. And if you heard this in verse 13, salt's mentioned three times. And it gives the salt a name. It's called the salt of the covenant. So what does this mean? Well, salt is a metaphor for permanence because it doesn't burn up in fire. So after the fire has consumed the, the offering, a residue of salt would be left on the altar. And the the salt did two things. It showed forth God's presence and also Israel's promise. First, God's presence. By requiring the Israelites to add salt to their offerings, the Lord was providing a way for them to constantly affirm their covenant relationship with him. This affirmation would have been a huge encouragement to them by reminding them of God's steadfast commitment to be their covenant king. The salt told the offerer, I'm not going anywhere. I will not abandon you. It is God reminding Israel that he is all in. For better or for worse, in obedience or sin, God will not leave them or forsake them. And second, the salt reminded the Israelites of their covenant obligations. In the book of Exodus, God tells Israel that he has chosen them to be his representatives to the world. And the covenant laws that he gives to them are to be followed in order to show the, the world, to show the nations God's wisdom and his righteousness and his holiness. And God's covenant, his promise to never abandon his people, and his people's response to love and serve him. This covenant that bound God and his people together runs throughout the the Bible. And then Jesus actually picks this up in Matthew 5 when he tells his followers that they're to be salt of the earth. 
They were to be living examples that showed forth, that showed the world that God was keeping his promises. So the whole point of the grain offering was to say to God, God, I am totally devoted to you. I'm going to live my life in a way that shows the world that you are my Lord. And then in that offering, right, the offering burns up and what's left is the salt, which is displays to the offer God's promise to remain faithful. So that's the grain offering. And then Leviticus 3 describes what is known as the peace offering. And the word for peace here is, um, comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And this word is bigger than our word for peace. Right? Our word for peace usually refers to ceasefire, like the, the absence of conflict. But this word for peace is something much bigger. It's wholeness, fullness, happiness, satisfaction. In other words, this was an offering that was about fellowship between you and God and you and one another. Now, we didn't read what follows in chapter 3, but um, there's a bunch of weird commands. We read some of these weird commands about what gets burned on the offering and what gets eaten, right? The entrails, the guts of the animal, the kidneys, the liver, etc. were to be burned, while the meat was to be eaten and shared with priests. Now, this is, right, this doesn't make any sense to us, um, but scholars explain that the entrails of the animal were actually the most desirable thing to be eaten. Now, this is hard for us to understand because our palates that disgusts us, right, to eat the entrails of the animal. But for whatever reason, in the ancient Near East, that was the good part. And the point is this, that God gets the best portion. So God gets the best portion, and then the people share in his provision by celebrating with a meal. And aside from the weird technical discussion about animal guts, this sacrifice was a party. Think about it. God has basically set up a giant charcoal grill in the middle of his tabernacle. Um, and by establishing the, the peace offering, he's instituted the first barbecue. We've got, as you can imagine, the priest whose job was to keep this fire going continually and then um, to offer the sacrifices, burning the entrails and fat off the meat, but cooking the meat. Right? They, they were well-practiced grill masters. Um, if you can imagine the scene, the sight and the smell um, of this barbecue happening that was pleasing to God. Right? It says this, that it, like any good barbecue, it smells delicious. This is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the peace offering was this extravagant barbecue. It was a time to eat together, to enjoy one another's company, to celebrate how God had been good to you. And most scholars see a clear parallel between this meal and what we have in the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist. That before his death and resurrection, Jesus gave his followers a meal intended to be joyful and festive, Showing that you had been granted his shalom. You've been given his peace and were living in obedience to him. All right, so you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything? And as we read Leviticus together, we're going to see that the beauty in this book is found in the details. And with our passages tonight, I want us to pay attention to the progression of these three offerings that we've looked at. So last week we looked at the burnt offering, this sacrifice that was incinerated on the altar, resulting and the offerer's redemption. All right, if you remember, the offerer would lay his hands on the animal, signifying that the animal was dying in his place, paying the penalty for his sin. And the result of this offering was in a right relationship with God. And the grain offering is about commitment. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, our promise to follow his commands. And then the peace offering is for celebration. It's the blowout party. It's the great feast, living in the joy of God and one another. And if you notice in verse 5, the peace offering is offered on top of the burnt offering. Right? The order of these offerings matter. Because in the order, 
we see the central truth of Christianity. In the order of these offerings, we see the central truth of Christianity. Does God accept you because of what you've done for him? Because of what you sacrificed for him? Or does he accept you in spite of your sin and stupidity? And then on the basis of his love, do you seek to live a righteous life? Do you see how dramatically different these options are? One says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And the other says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. One says, I behave the way I think a moral person should behave, and therefore I'm accepted by God. And the other says, I'm accepted by God, therefore I live in response to his love. Jeff Ferguson, who's a pastor in Virginia, he says it this way. He says, in any relationship, intimacy and sacrifice are always connected. You have to have both if you're going to be in a relationship with someone. But you also have to get them in the right order. Now, for many of us, we want relationships that have sacrifice but no intimacy. Maybe you're the kind of person who wants to know what the rules are. You relate to people and to God as if you're punching a card. Right? Relationships become boxes to check. Friendships are just one more thing in your resume. You want the benefits of relationships, acceptance, meaning, joy, without having to deal with actual people. Let me ask you this. Do you have problems feeling like you're connected to people, like you're actually connecting to people? Of course you do. This is because people are more complicated than that. You can't have sacrifice without intimacy. You can't assume that you and another human being are right with each other just because you check the right boxes. And if this is you, my guess is that you are incredibly burned out, or you're on your way there, or you're incredibly condescending to others. Either way, you're probably not connecting to people. Now, for some of you, this is why you're rebelling against your parents, right? They did everything right. They raised you in a good home. They gave you the things you needed to succeed. They sent you to the best schools. They taught you manners and how to behave. But you feel like they've never connected with you. You think to yourself, I've got great parents, but they don't know me. They don't know who I want to be, right? It feels like they want the benefit of the relationship without the real relationship, And here the Lord says, I'm not going to deal with you like that, and you're not going to deal this way with me either. Um, Early in the Bible, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Maybe you're familiar with it. Cain murders his brother Abel, and he murders his brother out of jealousy, jealousy over the sacrifices that they brought to God. Abel brings a blood sacrifice, and Cain brings a grain offering. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. Now, why is this? It's because Cain assumed that he could give God his service and the fruits of his labor without dealing with the problem in their relationship, without dealing with the reality that he was a a sinner in need of redemption that only comes through blood. Abel got it. He he got that he needed a substitute. Cain didn't. And self-righteous people always need to hear how big of a sinner they are before they really understand what it's like to relate to God. So some of us want relationships that have sacrifice but no intimacy, and other, others of us want to have intimacy with no sacrifice. Right? These are our social butterflies. You're the life of the party, people like you, but does anyone know you well enough to love you? You're on autopilot. Your interactions with others are run by the question, do they like me? You just want the good feeling of being liked. You don't want to sacrifice in order to truly serve that other person And boiling it down, you suffer from the same disease, relationally speaking, that the sacrifice person does. Shallow superficiality. No one really loves you because you haven't stopped to think of them instead of yourself. 
And this might be what many of you feel as you play the social media game, right? You're posting just the right photo with just the right caption to get the, right, the most likes. Trying to jockey for social status through your phone than rather than doing the quiet, hard work of being a friend without getting any public praise for it. And spiritually speaking, you are tortured souls, right? You know your sin, and you instinctively know that you're living a lie spiritually. As soon as, soon as things get difficult or suffering starts, you look for the escape hatch. You're quick to indulge in the first temptation that comes your way because you've never dealt with the fact that your spiritual life revolves around you and not around God. You're driven by self-gratification, and it's hard to admit that your call, that what you call your spiritual life, is just something that exists to serve you. Now, Jesus captures this idea perfectly in a parable that he tells in Luke 15. He's talking to the Pharisees and the, the leaders of Israel, and he says this. He says, a man has two sons. The younger son says to his dad, give me my share of the inheritance, which is in effect is he's saying to him, you're as good as dead to me. Give me what's coming to me. And so the father divides the property between his two sons. And the younger son goes far away and he squanders all that he has in reckless living. And when he's spent everything, he has to hire himself out to a pig farmer. Who's, and he's so hungry and so broke that he, he sees the garbage that he's feeding the pigs and he longs to eat it himself. And he thinks to himself, even my father's hired hands eat better than this. I'm going to go home to my dad and I'm going to say, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. And so the boy goes home. And as Jesus tells the story, while he's still a long way off, his father sees him and he feels compassion on him. And he runs to him. And he throws his arm around him and he kisses him on the neck. And the son tries to apologize, but his dad interrupts him. He says to his servants, go, get the best robe, get my ring, get... Um, shoes to put on his feet and go get the fattened calf and kill it because we need to eat and celebrate because this my son who is dead is now alive. My son who is lost is now found. But the older son who had been in the field, who'd been obedient all along, he hears the music and he hears the dancing and he finds out when he finds out why there's a party, he's furious and he refuses to go in. So his dad comes out to him and begs him to come celebrate. But his older son says this. He says, look, Dad. <clears throat> look, Dad, I've served you for years with never asking for so much as a goat for me and my friends. And when this son of yours, this son of yours who has devoured your property, he's wasted your money with prostitutes. When he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father replies, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. And we have to celebrate now because this, your brother who is dead, is now alive. He who is lost is now found. Right? So the older brother in this story tries to live by sacrifice without intimacy. He slaves away for his dad, checking the box of obedience, but never enjoying the relationship with his father. And when his brother comes home, he's furious because he sees his brother receive this lavish party. And Jesus is saying to the older brothers... You have been trying to live with sacrifice but not intimacy. Your heart is hard and you need to repent. We see the younger son tries to live by intimacy without sacrifice, right? And he ends up in a pigsty, seeking after intimacy without any cost to himself. And to the younger brothers, Jesus is saying, you've been trying to live with intimacy but no sacrifice. You are rebellious and you need to repent. You need to come home. 
But notice that whether they were in the pigsty or they were in the field just outside the party, both of them were far from their father's heart. Here's what I'm getting at. All of the sacrifices in Leviticus shout to us, they scream to us that we can have access to God, but only in God's divine order. Right? The sacrifice first, the burnt offering, then your commitment, the grain offering, and then our enjoyment together, the peace offering. When a Jewish person walked into the tabernacle, the first piece of furniture he saw was the altar. And if you were looking for God, this would show you that the first step is repentance. The altar says to us, on the one hand, um, stop denying your need for a sacrifice. And on the other, stop trying to fix your problem by yourself. And Christianity dares to suggest that it is through Jesus Christ alone that we have this access to God. Because he is the true burnt offering. Right? He is our substitutionary sacrifice. He was consumed on the cross for our sins so that we might be made acceptable, acceptable to God. He is the true grain offering. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is given for us. He is our certainty of God's faithfulness. If you ever doubt the sturdiness of God's promises... Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is the mystery of the Christian faith on which the church stands. And Jesus is the true peace offering. Ephesians 2.14 tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. That he has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here's the point of all this. Jesus has fulfilled these sacrifices through his death and his resurrection, he has done it. He has given himself to you. He has given himself for you so that you might be free to give yourself to him. You are accepted so that you might walk in his love and know his peace. In closing, I just want to make one final observation. Um, in the peace offering, there are three parties that eat. God, who gets the best portion. The priest, who gets his portion. And the people, who get the rest of the animal and shares with their family and friends. And this shows us that God loves to eat with sinners. One commentator remarked that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And when he's not at a meal, he's talking about one. Like in the parable of the prodigal son. His ministry was so marked by eating and drinking that the Pharisees say, look at Jesus, he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So for you, wherever you are coming from tonight, if you're like the older brother, you're so busy checking the boxes and doing what the right thing that you've missed the heart of God. Or if you're like the younger brother and you sought your own pleasure through reckless living, squandering your life and missing the love of God for you in Christ. Know this. Jesus has come into the world so that you might be brought into God's presence. And there is a feast waiting for you. A feast prepared for you. Tim Keller puts it this way. He writes, Jesus tells us that both the sensual way of the younger brother and the ethical way of the older brother are spiritual dead ends. He shows us that there's another way, through him. And to enter that way and to live a life based on his salvation will bring us finally to the ultimate party and feast at the end of history. We can have a foretaste of that future salvation now through prayer, through service to others, and the changes in our inner nature through the gospel, and through the healed relationship that Christ can give us now. But they are only a foretaste of what is to come. So what is to come? I'll close with this. This is from Isaiah 25. This is what God says about what is to come. 
He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you fulfill perfectly these sacrifices. Um, Lord, because you long for us to be drawn into communion with your Father. Lord, we thank you that you have pictured that for us as a feast. Lord, that as we eat and drink, we would know your care and kindness and joy that you have for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand.